This is Lunch with Legends, brought to you by thinkslinger.org. That's thinkslinger.org, where words collide. And now your host, Lou Stowers. Thanks, big game Jimmy Flame. Thomas Harold Gamboa was born in Los Angeles on February 28, 1948. Just missed being a leap year baby by one day. So instead of being 72 in this year of 2020, he'd be 18. Well, he's still running around like a teenager these days, bouncing between Rancho Mirage, California, near Palm Springs, and Balboa Island. Man, two great places. He'll play a round of golf with just about anyone and even lower himself to play with me on occasion. Tom was drafted by the Orioles out of Notre Dame High School in Sherman Oaks, California, but was smart enough to attend University of California, Santa Barbara on a full baseball scholarship. As the Gaucho's center fielder for three seasons, Tom won all Big West Conference honors in 1969 and 70 while earning a bachelor's degree in history. The bilingual Gamboa's Spanish came in handy, managing seven seasons in the Puerto Rican Winter League, which garnered him a seat in the Association of Major League Legends of Latin America. He managed nine minor league teams stateside, including an Albuquerque Dukes team that was loaded with talent that would go on to star for the Dodgers. Gamboa, who was a scout for the Major League Baseball Scouting Bureau, remembers the day as a third base coach of the Chicago Cubs in 1998-99, having the best seat in the house when Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire went toe-to-toe in the most storied home run race ever. Man, was that fun. Unfortunately, Tom may be remembered mostly as the guy who was blindsided on the field at Comiskey Park in Chicago by a drunken father-son mugging duo while he was the Royals' first base coach in 2002 where he lost a hearing in his right ear. Well, I sat on his left side when I chatted with Tom, who was recovering from successful bladder cancer surgery on a mild autumn college football Saturday on Balboa Island. Oh, Tom's book, My Life in Baseball, is available on Amazon. Let's do it. All right. Yeah. Be fun. Yeah. We've done this a few times at Phil Trenny's. So I know. Now it's just a different environment. That's right. We're here at the beach. <laughs> And we are here at the beach with Tom Gamboa. Tom Gamboa was uh, uh, coach, manager, scout in the major leagues, and uh, now he's a cancer survivor, so he's got a lot of stories to tell. And he's also an L.A. native, went to Notre Dame High School in the San Fernando Valley. And in this edition of Lunch with Legends, Tom, thanks for joining us. Hey, Lou, it's, it's always good to talk to you. We've had some good times, and we're both very passionate about baseball. and. Uh, I have good memories of some of the times we spent together at good old Phil Tronny's in Long Beach. Oh yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Phil's uh, just went there last night. Uh, Maxine and I uh, <laughs> went there. My ex- executive producer, <laughs> we went there last night for dinner, and uh, yeah, it's always a great place to go. Well, we went there for uh, uh, the Association of Pro Ball Players of America um, uh-huh. uh, dinner and. Uh, or, or, or mixer there and uh, Chuck Stevens birthday party and that was quite a quite a gig wasn't it it was a great great thing and and to think that we all got to be a part of uh, Chuck's hundredth birthday celebration because it wasn't too long after that that unfortunately we lost him but but what a great uh, tribute that was uh, for him and, and so well deserved I mean a great career and then for about 40 years, what he gave back to the game as the director of the uh, uh, the Players Association, the the, the the philanthropic part of giving back to players and scouts and coaches and managers that fell on tough 
financial times in, in later life. So, yeah, that was, I wouldn't have missed that for anything. And uh, Bobby Gritch was also there now. He's the president. Uh -huh. And boy, what a renaissance the uh -huh. uh, APVPA is, uh, has, is witnessing right now. Yeah, under, under Bobby's leadership, I knew as soon as he took that position, having known him over the years, the, the passion that he would bring to it, his energy would take it to a whole different level. And I'm sure we're gonna see each other on November 9th, I believe. Right. We're, we're gonna have our dinner at, at Anaheim Stadium. At so the Diamond good. Club, and yeah. uh, I've been asked to emcee it again, so. Good. Hey, why not? <laughs> it's a great chance to see uh, you guys and, and, and all that, and uh, catch up with, with, uh, with guys like that. And hopefully, uh, uh, well, I don't wanna let the cat out of the bag, but hopefully we'll be honoring the 1979 Angels because this is the 40th anniversary of wow. that team. That's right. Jesus, the time goes. When you get older, the time goes by <laughs> too fast. Too That's fast. right. And our buddy Doug DeSensei was uh, on the other side of that. That's he right. Was, he was with the Orioles. He was with Baltimore in those days. That, that, that's right. And, and funny you bring up his name because we're going on a Duffy boat ride in just a couple hours. Yeah. Doug and his wife and my, my daughter and, and some of my other baseball friends. So that's, yeah. So yeah, that'll be a lot of fun to see that. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, but to, uh, I was just looking over your bio and and getting to know your mm -hmm. your family just a little bit. Um, it seems like there's been a a, a whole uh, legacy of, of teaching. Uh, you're mm -hmm. teaching baseball. Your son is a teacher now mm -hmm. at in the Ivy League, and uh, at Dartmouth. And uh, just just getting to know some of your some of your kids, your daughters and granddaughters, looks like they're in that uh, in that realm as well. Yeah, it's uh, it wasn't by design. I mean, uh, certainly in, in my case, uh, when my when my stepdad, who I consider my father, I took on his name. Uh, I didn't know what baseball was until I was nine years old, and he literally he taught me how to play. And when I played my first game in little league, I can remember telling him and my mom, I was so passionate and loved everything about the game. I mean, the teamwork, all wearing the same uniform, all striving for the same cause, the bonding. I mean, I saw all the benefits of baseball in my first game. And at dinner, in my uniform, I said, I'm gonna be doing this my whole life. And my dad laughed and he said, well, you may not be good enough. And I said, it won't make any difference. I'll play till I can't play anymore and then I'll be a coach. And, but I was hoping to play a lot more, like, because Doug DeSensei and I were teammates on a, a collegiate summer club that the Baltimore Orioles uh, had interest in all the players. The was difference that a, the summer wood bat league. Yeah, it was it was uh, <clears throat> it was called the California Collegiate League. Oh, okay. I don't know that it exists anymore. But back in the '60s, uh, we played out of San Fernando Valley State, which is now Cal State Northridge, mm -hmm. and then later L.A. Valley Junior College. Okay. And uh, I hit second. Doug hit third. Um, the difference was that Doug went on to have a long major league career. <laughs> And I didn't, but I did fulfill my dream by becoming a teacher and a coach at a local uh, St. John Bosco, a national football power. Yeah. Um, and then I went back into pro ball with the Orioles as a scout, and my career blossomed from there. I knew I knew I belonged into with my personality being extroverted. I knew I'd be better um, not looking through the fence and evaluating, but being on the field and teaching. And, um, you know, so that became my forte and it, it took me a long time, but at 49 or 49, I finally got to the big leagues as a coach. So I did get nice. there. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, John Bosco, uh, the Lamp brothers came out of there 
and mm -hmm. uh, Dennis Lamp, yep. uh, and then Kevin Lamp, who tells the story of, of you were so upset at a game that uh, I believe that you lost to Down they lost to Downey, Bosco lost to Downey or played Downey. Okay. And you were so angry at the players on that Friday game. Now we're right underneath the, the takeoff pattern of John Wayne Airport, so we're gonna try to talk <laughs> through all of this as uh, Alaska Airlines uh, takes off over us. Uh, we're here in beautiful Balboa Island where Tom is, is recovering from uh, uh, cancer surgery and, and what a place to recover from. Yeah. But we'll get to that okay. later. But uh, Kevin says that you told the players that uh, back then, uh, well, still now, there's very rare to have a Saturday practice or a game, but you made them go through a, a practice and drills the next day on Saturday, and they still haven't forgotten that. Wow. Well, I had forgotten it, <laughs> but it, but it does sound like something that I would do. Uh, but even in those days when I was young and ambitious, and like all young coaches, you want to win, I still I had I had gone to a lot of coaching clinics and, and uh, everyone that either Bobby Winkles or Augie Garrido spoke at because I had a lot of respect for them. And even then, if, if the players played with intensity and played a good game and we got beat, I was okay with that. Where I had a problem is if there was a breakdown in fundamentals, if there was uh, mental lapses or, um, um, you know, mental errors, you know, the physical stuff, that that's going to happen with young kids, but the chances are we probably had some bonehead plays that ticked me off and, and why I did that. But yeah, and, and unfortunately for me, Kevin remembers everything about those days because I get a lot of phone calls from him to this day. Oh boy, yeah, yeah, he loves to, he loves to talk, doesn't he? Yeah. But uh, uh, but boy, he's a great guy, and and because of him getting back to the APBPA, I didn't even know that it existed mm -hmm. until Kevin invited me to one of the dinners at, uh, at the Grand in Long Beach. Mm -hmm. uh, go, coming up through Notre Dame High School in, in the San Fernando Valley um, and then the Baltimore Orioles organization, you managed uh, in the minor leagues, what, nine teams? Oh, yeah, a lot, oh, gosh, a lot of years. I, I started with the Orioles, I actually scouted and the scouting bureau. And then, when I, then I went with the Milwaukee Brewers in 78 as a, as a scouting supervisor and the minor league hitting instructor, which I really enjoyed because then I got to be on the field teaching and working with players. And from 78 to 82, be, being a, a minor league hitting instructor, you had the benefit of seeing all levels of professional baseball from, from the highest level, AAA, all the way down to the rookie league. And I knew in my heart I was gonna end up managing at some point. So I had the benefit of those years of seeing people both good and bad and knowing, uh, being outside the fishbowl and seeing what players responded to and what they didn't. And we had a guy at Milwaukee, John Felsky, who did a terrific job at AAA and later went on to manage the Philadelphia Phillies mm. um, and unfortunately did not have uh, success that Philly can be a tough tough place <laughs> to play in as a visitor and certainly to work in if you're not winning. But I learned a lot from him. And then I had the good fortune in 83 to start my managing career with the Milwaukee Brewers and uh, managed rookie league, low A, high A, and had three straight pennant winners. And then I went on to uh, kind of more of an executive position. I was a field coordinator, which is kind of like being a 
superintendent of a high school district, meaning that um, all, all major league teams back at, in that era, and I'm talking about the 80s, had six farm teams. And so as the field coordinator, <clears throat> it was my job to determine what was going to be taught, how it was going to be taught, what the prevailing attitude and atmosphere was going to be, what the discipline was going to be. And um, from, for all six teams and for all the, 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 the coaching staff. And it was a job that I relished and enjoyed and it was a challenge because you had to put out all kinds of fires and be a troubleshooter. But I, I did not like the aspect that I, that I didn't have a single team that I captained from beginning to end. And so um, that's what catapulted my winter ball career uh, I spent nine winters in Puerto Rico and one in Mexico, where being a field coordinator in the wintertime when they had their big league seasons in Latin America, I got to fill my p passion of managing. and was for fortunate enough to win in seven of the 10 years that wow. I was in winter ball. And then ultimately later in my career, I went back to managing and, and filled the only two levels that I hadn't. I, we won a pennant with the Angels at Arkansas in the Texas League in, uh, in 2005. And then in 2000, I managed the, I was the last Dukes manager of the Albuquerque Dukes, of which the Dodgers were there, I believe, for 30 consecutive years. Right. Uh, through Tommy Lasorda and Bill Russell, Del Crandall, Terry Collins, a lot of very successful people. And, and fortunately, in the last year, because that was a family-owned operation, um, I promised them we'd win a pennant their last year, and we had a great group of guys, uh, a nucleus of uh, Alex Cora, and uh, he's he's not doing too bad. As a not manager. doing too badly, and was a and, and was a terrific young shortstop when I had him, and Eric Gagne, uh, who had the potential to be a 20-game winner, but ultimately became. Uh, the premier closer of his era with the Dodgers. Now he got sent back down to you, right? Uh, several times that year. Yeah, because he, he he actually failed as a starter because his he was a Canadian with a hockey player's mentality and he made too much of the big leagues. He didn't trust that his stuff was good enough. And at the AAA level, he didn't walk anybody. And when he would get to the big leagues, his, just, his control just fell apart because he tried to overthrow. Uh, but once they put him in a closer's role, and he trusted his stuff, which was electric. I mean, at one point, I believe he saved like 83 games in a row. Right. And then and then the third key guy on that club was Paul LaDuca, whose the bulk of his career was with the New York Mets. But all three of those guys were huge factors in us. Gosh, we won the pennant by like 13 games, if I remember right. Yeah, and uh, that's, uh, yeah, I think 13 games. Uh, but. Uh, that nucleus and then uh, say so getting Eric uh, Gagne back down how does that work does the big league club tell you what to do and this is what we want to do with them or do you make suggestions or is it kind of a no no uh, everything is dictated from the big league level down and in Gagne's case it's it's funny because on gosh on opening night in uh, AAA we opened with the o uh, Oklahoma City uh, Rangers and Gagne threw we had, you know, we had a pitch limit coming out of spring training, so if I, you know, whatever it was, it might have been 80 pitches. Hmm. He literally threw a perfect game with like 10 strikeouts for seven innings, except that in the seventh inning, 
a, a routine fly ball to center at twilight time, oh. uh, our outfield just couldn't see it, so it dropped for a pop fly double. But that was the only base runner of the game. And from the dugout, my pitching coach and I lo were looking at each other like, how is this guy not on the staff in L.A.? Because, I mean, his stuff was just electric. And so he was wi only with us a short time. But he went to the big leagues. He faltered. They sent him back down. Um, as a starter because they, they said, hey, he, his command has to get better to pitch at this level. And we thought, gosh, at our level, his command is, he, you know, he was walking like less than two per nine innings. Jeez. And finally, when he went up either the second or third time, I remember we were in New Orleans and had a rain out. And so we actually, I can remember my pitching coach and I being in a bar in New Orleans, watching the Dodgers and the Braves on TV and we saw a completely different guy than what we managed. Because, okay. because from the first pitch of the game, he was overthrowing. He just didn't trust that at the highest level, the guys that he idolized on TV that now oh. he's playing with, that his natural stuff was good enough to get them out. And we could, we could tell that he was overthrowing because he wasn't just missing the strike zone by a little bit. You know, he'd be wild high and then overcorrect and be in the dirt. And if I remember right, you know, he walked like three guys in four and two-thirds innings before he was pulled. And when he came back down, uh, Dean Trainer, who was my pitching coach at the time, w w we talked to him in the office and said, hey, at some point, you have to trust that what you're doing at AAA is good enough to get those big league hitters out. Because you, you have yet to give yourself a chance up there off what we saw on TV. Because you can't walk people like they... Not only the walks, but the walks indicate that the other hitters, you're probably behind the count 1-0, 2-0, and 3-1. Big league hitters are going to make a living on those kinds of pitches. In AAA, you've got a guy 0-2 before he, he's hardly in the box. Wow. Because your trust level is so high here. And I remember saying, I said, Eric, the next time you go back, if you have to actually trick yourself in your mind, just pretend that we're playing, you know, the New Orleans Zephyrs or... Um, the Oklahoma City Rangers, somebody that you pitched good against in AAA because if you could just calm down, you're going to surprise yourself and find that that's good enough to get him out. Wow. And I'm glad it finally happened because, uh, I mean, he had a stellar career oh, yeah. until he had, uh, you know, arm injuries. But that, uh, I mean, when he came in as Trevor Hoffman in later years, I was with the Padres. You could just sense that when a Gagne walked through that gate or Trevor Hoffman and certainly Mariano Rivera, it's it's defeating. The other team virtually knows, geez, this game's over. We'll yeah. get them tomorrow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that, that's such a big deal now in, in this in today's game yeah. is, is the, how the pitching staffs are, are, yeah. are built. So now who are some of the other players that uh, you managed in the minor leagues that, that made it big or uh, then or now are coaching or managing? Oh gosh, I was fortunate my very first year when we we were in the smallest town in pro, in all professional baseball in this country. The population, if I remember right, was like 1,100. Wait a minute, I, let me guess. Butte, Montana. No, that came a little, that was a little bit bigger, but my first was uh, Paintsville, <laughs> three people, Paintsville, Kentucky, Okay. <laughs> which is just a, for, for country music fans, is just a few miles from Butcher Holler, where uh, 
uh, Loretta Lynn and Crystal Gale were from. Right. I mean, you're talking about the deep coal mining parts of Kentucky. That's uh, southeast Kentucky? Yeah, well, that I'm not sure. I didn't know where I was because <laughs> I'd never been to Kentucky before, but, uh, but it was small. But I was the benefit of a great draft of the Milwaukee Brewers, and uh, we went 47 and 25. We won the pennant on the wow. last day of the season, and the two big names uh, that emerged off that team was Dan Plezak, who was a starter uh, like uh, Gagne, all the way up through Triple A, and a, and projected to be a 20-game winner. Um, if, for those that don't remember, Dan was a 6-5 like 220 pound left-hander that, that now does uh, a analyzes for MLB. Oh, okay. And, um, but, when, but when Dan got big league ready, the need was for a closer and he had a stellar career for a lot of years as Milwaukee's closer. And then our uh, right fielder was Glenn Braggs. Uh, our second, uh, Plezak was the first round pick. Glenn was the second round pick out of the University of Hawaii. And Glenn's career was basically with the Cincinnati Reds. And a uh, big, strong guy and a five-tool player that had a very, very fine career. And then yeah, the next the year. He hit the ball really hard. Yeah. I remember that. And then the next year, I was fortunate enough to manage a, another Brewer draft from the University of Hawaii named Joey Meyer, who was a Steve Balboni type. Uh, and he won the Triple Crown in low A ball for us. And he had a very short big league career due to his size and injury factors. But to have two Triple Crown guys back to back was, I thought, was really something. But, uh, you know, I, I think the guy that, that I mean, a, a lot of guys stood out, but one that really was prominent, uh, uh, I managed Ken Caminiti in Mayaguez, Puerto Rico in winter ball before anybody in America other than his parents knew who he was. <laughs> he, he, he came up through the Houston Astro farm system out of San Jose State College, was not a high draft, and, and I was with the Detroit Tigers at the time and we needed a third baseman and I was pleading with our people to make a trade for this guy. But he was obviously on Houston's radar and they wisely kept him and the next year not only did he get to the big leagues, but I believe after his first year, he was in a huge trade with the Padres and had a big, big time career, was the MVP, mm -hmm. I believe in 98, and unfortunately left the world way too soon yeah. um, due to a, 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 dr a drug problem and eventual overdose, but uh, a, a tremendous player, a great makeup, great team guy, um, a 4-2 player, everything but, everything but running speed. He didn't need you the way he hit. That's yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's, and he could pl really play some defense too. You talk about uh, Ken Caminiti and a lot of uh, a lot of those uh, players in that era. Uh, that was uh, the steroid era. Mm -hmm. How prominent were, was that in in your time uh, as a, as a coach and a manager in in the minor leagues? Yeah. Well, you know what. The, Lou, that's a, that's a great question, and I'm kind of Forrest Gump on that because, uh, you know, not having ever done it myself, um, I, I just I just I never I never really saw it until, um, you know, two instances come to mind with that question. In '93, um, I, I was the field coordinator with the San Diego Padres, and I remember watching a a major league game on. TV of the week and Brady Anderson had 
if I remember right, his highest home run total was like 12 in the minor leagues. And I believe he hit 51 that year for the Baltimore Orioles. And, wow. and when I saw his back walking from the on-deck circle to home plate, other than the name on his back, I wouldn't have known who, who it was because it looked like a looked like a pro football linebacker. And I thought, oh my God, no wonder where all these home runs are. And I thought, there's no way that you could do that just from lifting weights. He was just too, too, too big. So that, that was one. And then the second was in 2004, I managed in uh, Hermosillo, Mexico in the winter time. And I would see players go into the training room uh, before games and get shots. And, and, and I, you know, I asked my trainer, I said, what, like a shot for what? And it was, it was always the same thing. Well, it's just a B12 shot to boost his energy because you know, the bus rides, the plane, right. you know, the, the season can be long, even a winter ball. And I, and it, and then I started thinking, geez, I don't know that, I don't know what B12 does, but I'm wondering if there's not more to it than that, you know? And certainly when I was a third base coach for the Cubs in 98, and this is an interesting story, you know, players have to do an exit physical. So in 97, when Sammy Sosa left us, he was 198 pounds. That's mm -hmm. what he weighed out at. In spring training, the first day of spring training, when he came in the locker room, I was like, oh my God, Sammy, you, he looked great. I mean, he looked like a concrete wall. And he stepped on the scale at 232. And that's, I mean, that's 34 pounds for a, a wow. grown man. And I was like, in three months. Jesus, what did you do this winter? And he, he would oftentimes talk in the third person. He said, Sammy lifted weights hard this winter. And, you know, you know like an idiot, I actually believed it. I thought that he had taken like some health foods and weights to make him so, but I mean, when you touched his body, it was oh. like touching a piece of steel. Well, I, I uh, worked in uh, Quincy, Illinois. I was a downstater then uh -huh. at WGEM, and we would do uh, cover some games up at Wrigley Field, especially opening day. We would okay. do live radio shows there. And I remember slapping Sammy in, uh, between the dugout and the clubhouse uh, on, the, on the tricep, and it was just hard as a rock. Yeah, yeah there and, was no... And it was as big as my thighs. It's <laughs> like, right. wow. And it's like, well, geez, what is, the, wow, I mean, what is he eating? Yeah. Yeah, well, the, in, in spring training that year, the ball wasn't just going over the fence. When we would take batting practice every day, I mean, he was hitting him out of stadiums. I mean, it was, it, it, it looked like a Titleist II going out of the ballpark. And I remember in, in May when he set the, the record, I don't know if it's been broken since or not, but he hit 20 home runs in a month. I remember on a plane saying to the other coaches, I said, my God. I remember uh, Roger Maris hitting a 61st home run off Tracy Stallard. Uh, number six, I, I, I never thought I'd see that record broken in my lifetime. And I said, well, it's gonna happen this year. And Dan Radisson, our first base coach said, well, Tom, he's not gonna do this all year. And I said, yeah, he really is. I said, I mean, if he gets hurt, you know, who knows? But if he stays healthy, he can miss it and hit it over the fence. When he hits it good, it's going out of the stadium. I said, this is going to keep happening. And, you know, lo and behold, that's where, you know, McGuire ended up with 70. Right. And Sammy hit 66. And, uh, you know, a, a funny anecdote is that McGuire hit number 62 against us. That's right. And, and the next week we went back to Chicago and Sammy hit three in one game against the Brewers. And he, he had 62. 
And when he came around third, you know, I just acted like normal. And in the shower after the win, Sammy was like, hey, Tom, you could have got a little bit more excited about me. 62 home runs. And I went, uh, I saw that last week. <laughs> and everybody laughed. Everybody laughed, you know. It's already been done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So, but th that was a, a, a fun season to watch. Oh. Uh, plus, not only was it the Cubs and the Cardinals, which is Major League Baseball's high school rivalry, I think, and you got the blue mm -hmm. and the red, and everybody, uh, the fan bases are so fantastic in those two towns. Yep. But it was just a fun, uh, fun time to watch baseball. Yeah, it was, uh, well, it, it was given credit for bringing baseball back. And uh, like I said, I was totally, totally ignorant of the steroids, which, you know, I became aware of after the fact. Uh, well, I think everybody but, was. But it was. But it was not a banned substance at right, the time. Right, correct. It was not banned, and it really wasn't talked about then. Um, and but, Mark McGuire had that uh, GNC uh, gallon jug right of Androstein Dione. Right in his locker. Yeah, right in camera shot. And yeah. I even asked him about that. And he says, I get it for free. Yeah. But you're, you're you know, but but uh, yeah, being the third base coach for the Cubs that year, gosh, it it, it was uh, certainly the, the, probably the the most exciting year of my career, uh, being on the peripheral. I mean, being the tenth man, so to speak, as a third base coach in uniform, but seeing Sosa literally not have a slump all year, and and people often ask me, you know, they because he was a 250 hitter until that, you know, not only did he hit 66 home runs, but I think he hit like 318. It was over 300. And people have asked me, they said, well, how, what was the biggest difference you saw? Well, okay, in hindsight, we can say yeah, he had, you know, additional strength. Uh, but, but the technique-wise, Sammy struck out so much. And, and, and what I saw as the third base coach seeing every at-bat, all 600 of them, mm -hmm. is that in 97, the 1-1 pitch, Sammy would often chase a slider in the dirt or... Um, he'd get himself behind the count and it would lead to a strikeout. And Jeff Pentland, who was our hitting coach, he did a great job in getting Sammy, Sammy, who was always amped up, to do a double tap and slow the game down. And by slowing the game down, I mean he, he got Sammy to trust himself to watch the ball longer because Sammy was a dead pull hitter up, and, up through 97. And what I saw in the third base box in 98 was Sammy's double tap let the ball get deeper so that the 1-1 pitches that were teaser pitches, he would spit on them and let them go. And, and, and now when the count got to 2-1, especially with men on base, I felt like, I mean, so many times I thought, oh my God, it's gonna happen again. I mean, the guy has to come into the strike zone and it, this is going to be a rocket, and you know he'd hit it out, but he proved to himself early on that not just left field, because if you saw a spray chart of those 66, it, it was from pole to pole, and a lot of them were to right center. Right. And and I credit a lot of that to Jeff Pentland and Sammy working together, where Sammy trusted him, and Pentland opened up the whole field for him. And when you let the ball get deeper, you're not as prone to. You know, the average fan sometimes wondered, why did that guy swing at a ball that bounced in the dirt? I mean, can't anybody see that that's a ball? But hitters get antsy and they commit too soon. And that, you know, Sammy eliminated that and he became a very, very dangerous guy. In fact, he hit 60 or more for three consecutive right. years. Yeah. So quite a, quite a transition. 
Now, being a third base coach uh, at any level is, is busy. Mm -hmm. You have to keep your eye on pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. How can you even keep an eye on, on the batter and, and what they're doing and seeing, seeing their, uh, what they need to correct? Yeah, well, that wasn't, you know, they, they, that's why the hitting coach is in the dugout and, and has the benefit of when we're on defense going in and looking at film mm -hmm. and talking to guys during the game. You know, but as a, as a third base coach, um, it's funny you bring that up, Lou, because now that I'm 71, when I think back to when I did coach third, I had zero fear of the hitter, and I should have had because, <laughs> because with particularly with a man on second, to be able to do your job, which is to get the runner to get a good lead but not be in danger of picked off, it was my job to, to, to know where the second baseman and shortstop were playing sure. and help him to get off, get off and, until he could maximize his lead. So my positioning was always with my back to the hitter and being out of the third base box toward home plate where I was literally 65 to 70 feet away from guys like Sammy Sosa and Glenn Allen Hill. <laughs> and, oh, you know, I'd geez, look over yeah. my shoulder and once in a while they would pull a rocket that would go by me. But I can honestly say I never, I never thought about getting hit. I never had any fear, but I should have. And that was before the, you were required to wear a helmet out there. Oh, right? we didn't have. Well, no, we did not have any helmets. So, I mean, which is, uh, you know, I'm glad they do wear them today because on the flip side, um, you know, in the minor leagues, the manager coaches third because right. you don't have a, 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 you know, manager, pitching coach, hitting, and a hitting coach. So actually, you had it easy as a major league third baseman. Uh, as a, as a third, third base coach, third base yeah, coach. yeah, because yeah, my job was to just, <laughs> yeah, I, I hit fungos before pregame to Mark Grace and Mickey Morandini, the right side of the diamond, and the utility guys, and then coach third. That was it. But but in later years, when I was at Kansas City with the Kansas City Royals, I coached first base, and not having ever coached there before, it's a whole different look at the hitter, and I got hit twice in the same week. <laughs> After I'd coached, I'd coached third my whole life and never got hit with a baseball. So it was left-handers. And when I went, well, it or was you, it a right-hander? All changed. those years, my instinct was jumping a certain way, and at first base, it was opposite. Yeah. And I can remember we were playing in the Kingdome in Seattle, and Brett Main, our catcher, hooked. He had a 2-0 count, got a great pitch to hit, and just was out front of it. And he hooked a one-hop line drive that got me right in the private area I, and I didn't have a cup on, oh. you know, and when you're on TV, I'm just trying to grin and bear it. <laughs> and, and, and literally a few days later back in Kansas City in a Sunday day game, Michael Tucker, who was a real good hitter, Michael turned on a fastball and, and on Sunday with, with all the white shirts. Oh yeah. I had a tough time picking up the ball and I was able to turn my back and take it right, right, right off my buttocks. But I thought, Jesus, criminy, my whole life I don't get hit at third and now it's twice in a week. Yeah, I bet you that was, that was a, a whole new perspective over there. But then, unfortunately, uh, coaching first base, a couple of yahoos came out of the uh, stands and, and you, got, you got mugged. Yeah, September 19, 2002, I became infamous in this country. Unfortunately, you know, when I was growing up, Lou, uh, in Southern Cal, we only got to see nine games on TV a year. You know, right. the Dodgers and the Giants at Candlestick, and I never missed a game on Channel 11 with Vinny. <laughs> yeah, but black and white. Once again, I was a Forrest Gump, because when that happened, 
I mean, we were in last. The, the White Sox were in second to last. The, the, the game meant nothing. I mean, it's late September. You're just trying to finish the season. And I was actually naive enough to think that that would be a one-and-done scenario. But with, but because it was on, you know, with, with Fox Sports, with ESPN, uh, just the media that, that we live in today, mm -hmm. and because of 9-11, it became a violence and a sports thing kind of combined. And I remember the, the next day we were back in Kansas City and our, our me, uh, me, media relations director came to me after batting practice and he said, hey, we're, we're going to need you for the next half. And I was like, need me for what? And he was like, are you kidding? He goes, the, 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 we had to get a, 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 a separate room because we've got over 150 people here. Oh, wow. And I said, is this about the thing from last night? And he's like, yeah. And, I, and, and as I walked into the room from the back, I mean, I'm seeing people like Dan Patrick and Connie Chung that I watch on TV, and I'm thinking, these people flew into Kansas City for, you well, know. You were, you were assaulted. Yeah, well, I, yeah, but, I, but I was naive enough to think it, that in my era when I grew up, it would have been in the newspaper one day, and then it's gone. <laughs> but obviously, and when I got there, you could feel the tension in the room when they introduced me, because these people, I'm just a coach. People didn't know me, and they didn't know you know, and so I said, I said, uh, um, I said, well, I said, you people need to know one thing. I said, if I had been the captain of the Titanic, I've always told my players in bad times, losing streaks, if I would have been the captain of the Titanic, I would have told the passengers, hey, don't anybody panic because we're just stopping for ice. <laughs> so I said, I want you to know that's how I look at things. And I know you people have a job to do. I'm shocked to see people that I've watched on TV. But I said, I guess I'm the new Cato Kalin, you know, because I was smart enough to see that, okay, this is my 15 minutes of, I don't want to say fame, but infamous, be, you know. And so when everybody laughed, they could sense, oh my God, this guy has a sense of humor. And then all the hands went up. Because until okay. then, when I first walked in, there was so much tension. I wasn't sure if anybody was going to ask a question. You know, and so then, 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 then it ended up being a good because because I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't have anything to be embarrassed about, but the fact that, you know, the exposure. And then I had no idea that ESPN and Fox Sports were going to show it like a thousand times. You right. Know? Well, being on the other side of that, <laughs> right, the um, <clears throat> and the media side of that, when you see all the biggies there, mm -hmm. they get nervous because, and especially when it crosses sports and news lines, it's like. Well, who's going to ask what and who's going to start? That's what they think about. Oh, I see. And and then they see they see Tom Gamboa. It's like, well, what's this guy going to do? So it's kind of a multi thing. But yeah, they think about themselves. What am I going to be able to to oh, add you. here? Especially the news people. Yeah. So unfortunately, it wasn't all about you. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I, I don't believe burst me. Your bubble, believe but. me, I didn't want it to be about me. And then oh, the yeah. next morning, I remember. Get, uh, 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 getting a wake-up call at like 4.30 to be on the Today Show with Matt Lauer and Katie Couric, you know, because of the time difference from New York. Right. And, and so they, I was in the NBC studio in Kansas City, and that's when I started thinking, oh, my God, this thing's not going to go away, you know. And then by Friday night, um, we had an off day on Thursday, or, 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 or 
I guess it was a, on a Wednesday night. We, anyway, we had an off day, and when I came to the ballpark, Mike Sweeney and Joe Randa were waiting for me, and they said, oh, my God, you were on Letterman last night. And I said, oh, I don't know what the joke is, but I was not on Letterman because I played golf yesterday. And they took me to our bulletin board, and the night before, I'm not, I didn't watch Letterman, but they had already put on our bulletin board, David Letterman had the top 10 reasons why fans attack Tom Gamboa. <laughs> you know, with one of them being that, you know, my baseball card was worth more if I was dead than alive. And then I thought, oh my God, this thing is really not going to go away. It's just, it's crazy. Well, hey, then you made it. You knew you made it because you were on, on Letterman. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. great. So, and and uh, as far as your, your cancer, how's that going now? You had, what, bladder cancer? Yeah, unfortunately, April 25th was the worst day of my life. Um, I've always, you know, we all have empathy for people that get sick or get a disease. But, boy, my my empathy level increased a hundredfold on... Uh, I had, you know, which for anybody that watches this or listens to us, uh, the, 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 the only symptom of bladder cancer is blood in your urine. But they tell me nine times out of 10, the, the, the tumor, the mass is benign. But in my case, it would, not only was it cancerous, but there's three kinds of bladder cancer. Mine was the worst. And mm. I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die. Um, but then fortunately, there's a, a, a relatively new surgery um, <clears throat> I, w I went to, ended up at Keck Hospital at USC, and Dr. Donishmond, who is like wrote the book on this operation, he that's the guy you want. Boy, yeah, that, that, I mean, I put my life in his hands, and and there, he just had a charisma that you just knew that he knew everything about this. And fortunately for me, my cancer was lo only in my bladder, and he literally took it out and took my prostate out and made a new bladder out of a piece of my small intestine on uh, June 19th. Wow. And, to, and having seen him two weeks ago at the three month mark, he, he tells me I'm, I'm recovering at, at a faster rate than anybody that, but I, I had physically, I had really worked out before the surgery to, to make sure I survived it. And, and it, as you alluded at Balboa, I walked this island twice every day and I paddleboard and I do everything I can to try to get myself back. Strengthen that but, back, strengthen those but, muscles. But so back. far, so far good, so far yeah. so good. And so uh, I'm a cancer survivor and I thank God every day for it. Yeah, so what's next uh, for the Tom Gamboa legacy? Uh, well, just uh, I'm, I'm blessed with five great kids and nine grandkids and you met two of them. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, you know, so when I retired from the Mets in 68 because I figured 44 years was enough. And while I had my health at that time, uh, I have an equal passion for golf as I do for baseball. And so when I retired, I, I live at a, a beautiful country club, uh, Mission Hills in the Rancho Mirage in the Palm Springs area. And, uh, you know, golf during the week and spend time with my kids and grandkids, uh, most of which live in the Orange County area on weekends, and uh, I've got a, a good lifestyle, a happy life, and uh, I just, God willing, uh, and this cancer being gone, I hope I got a lot more time to spend with my family. <laughs> well, one of these days I'll, I'll be uh, fortunate enough and honored enough to come out and uh, have you beat my pants off that, out on the golf I, course. I, I, I look forward to it, and then, <laughs> and then maybe I'll have you jump in the 
you know, where I live is where the the women pros play their equivalent of the of the uh, masters, mm -hmm. and the winner jumps in the pond. So I might have to you I might have to push you in the pond on 18. <laughs> Out in Palm Springs, that probably wouldn't be a tough thing to do. Yeah. Well, Tom Gambo, I want to thank you very much. Uh, unless there's anything you want to add uh, to, to what we've talked about. Yeah, my, my last comment would just be, having, having gone through a near-death experience, uh, I think we all tend to get in a rut in times in our life, or maybe our priorities get a little bit out of whack. But I, I can just tell, tell your listeners from having faced, faced death that when it really comes down to it, um, I really think that every all of our lives are about our faith, family, and friends. Uh, I couldn't even get baseball and golf any there is no four, number four when 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 you're when you think you have limited time left for me the the um the, the the meaningful the time that i spent with any family friends was way more meaningful than before i was diagnosed with cancer and i and i hope that people would would take something out of that because none of us knows how much time we got here i mean you know somebody could in perfect health could be hit by a bus tomorrow or God forbid somebody gets a routine checkup and gets an unfavorable uh, diagnosis as I did, but I know that I'm, I'm living a much richer and fuller life now, having survived that operation and what I went through than I did before. It's just, it's just added incredible meaning to the, the time I spend with anybody. And, and, to, and Tony Muser, who's a mm -hmm. good mutual friend of yours and mine, Tony nearly lost his life back in 86 in an explosion in spring training in Milwaukee in a stadium that wasn't quite ready yet. And I know Tony, he's, pre he's been preaching this to me for 30 years and I didn't get it until I went through my near-death experience. So live life to the fullest. All right, Tom, thanks a lot. And, Lou, uh, it's always good spending time with you. Thanks for coming, coming down to the island. Are you kidding me? I wouldn't <laughs> miss it. I love this place. This has been a family uh, treasure since the uh, 1930s in, in, the, in the Stowers and the Alvarado family. So I'm glad that you're here to enjoy it. I'm glad that I could come down here and, and reminisce a little bit of it Good. myself. All right, uh, I want to thank Tom Gamboa very much for joining us, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Lunch with Legends. Tom's not done yet. You can get more great stories in Tom Gamboa's book, My Life in Baseball. It's available on Amazon. This is Lou Stowers for Lunch with Legends. Until next time, so long. The executive producer of Lunch with Legends is Maxine Stowers. Lunch with Legends is produced by James Thomas, Mike Landa, Lou Stowers. Lunch with Legends edited by Mike Landa and James Thomas. And Lunch with Legends directed by Mike Landa. Lunch with Legends is brought to you by ThinkSlinger.org. That's ThinkSlinger.org, where words collide. World Financial Group and Athena Financial. For all your personal financial growth needs, call Cassidy Eden at 562-266-7024. And by Conjun Water. Get alkaline water right out of your tap. Call Michael Landa at 714-931-0059. And by House of Fire Productions. Visit flamesaname.com for more info. Lunch with Legends is a production of ASE Media.